Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Our reading today is from Hebrews 3, 1, 7 through 14. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for a beautiful Sunday morning, for the opportunity to gather here in peace during a crazy season. Let us all join our hearts together, learn, and love each other in this time of Advent. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Hey, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, <clears throat> I hope that you're coming in today and you're among friends and you're encouraged. Or maybe the holidays are just a hard time for you, and you've come in a bit sad. Uh, you're missing someone who should be here, and they're not here. Maybe you're feeling a bit uh, lonely, or you're far from home. We have, I know we have students here. Maybe you're far from home, and uh, so it's okay to feel sad, too, and acknowledge that in church. Uh, I don't know if you're here, and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you totally disagree with us. Um, I don't think anybody's here by mistake. And so I just want to say welcome to everybody in the name of Jesus, and I'm really glad you're here. That was a beautiful text, but it's not the one that I wrote a sermon on. So clearly, I sent the wrong text to Madeline, who gave that to Nicole this morning. So does anybody have a message prepared on that text that you'd like to read? Okay, let's do a take two. Grab, your, grab the Bible in front of you. It's on 1706. That's clearly my bad, but that's a great text. We should read all of Hebrews and call it a sermon. Okay, 1706, um, I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 3, and then I'm going to read 7 through 15, okay? And that really was 100% John Odom's fault. Okay, we're collectively there. Okay, verse 1 and then 7 through 15. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Yeah, and then 7 through 15. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. 
That's why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, as has just been said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. All right. Uh, you're welcome to keep the Bible open. Um, when I'm writing a sermon, I generally, it's as a rule of thumb, try not to just make this stuff up. We start with the Scripture, say, what does the Scripture want to say to us? And so as a great rule of thumb, you should test me on this basically every week, is what I'm saying to you, what the Scripture is saying to us. So keep your Bible open. I'd love for you to do that. Today, I'm going to share the secret of how to have a hard heart. And hard hearts come in many shapes and sizes, and it's difficult to tell from the outside if a heart is hard. It's not just criminals and murderers and people on death row and people who have uh, obvious, you know, committed obvious atrocities that have hard hearts. A heart is hard uh, that no longer treasures or responds to goodness and truth and beauty in the way that God designed for it to, uh, the, God, the way that God engineered our hearts to respond. Sometimes a heart growing hard can lead people to think and do some terrible things. And sometimes a heart growing hard um, it's, it's leads us to think and do and live lives that just don't matter all that much. It just causes us to drift into meaninglessness or mediocrity or oblivion. Sometimes rather than growing into the magnificent bearers of the, the glory of the God who created us, we eke on forever in, in this could have been, should have been kind of reality. Shadows of our potential selves. Or most sadly of all, lacking an authentic self or a redeemed identity, we become these unthinking clones of whatever is popular at the time. How does that happen? How does a heart grow hard and how can we keep it from happening as the author of Hebrews warns us against? I hope that you had a chance to read the whole book of Hebrews uh, this week, going through the year of the Bible and marching our way through it. It's really a magnificent text, especially for people who've read the Old Testament this year. And though we don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews is, we have a good sense of his or her audience. Uh, that it was obviously a, a, an audience that was very familiar with the Jewish scriptures that has scripture-soaked imagination, that had a sense of all that God had done, and, and wanted to demonstrate to this audience how in Jesus, uh, the law and the Psalms and the prophets have been uh, fulfilled, and even their expectations and hopes have been exceeded. This text in Hebrews 3 that we've just read, and maybe if you're looking over it again, you can see these quotes from the Old Testament. The text presupposes that the reader knows the story of Israel and the Exodus. So, you remember the second book of the Bible is called Exodus. It tells the story of Israel being led out of 400 years of slavery. They plunder the Egyptians, leaving with silver and gold. They cross the sea on dry ground. They come to the mountain of God, Horeb, which is called Sinai. God shows up in smoke and fire and gives the people His law, shows up in power, demonstrating His, His authority over the gods of the Egyptians and over their expectations. And there at the mountain of God, the people quaked in fear and in awe of how God had revealed himself as the one God over all creation. And yet these same people to whom God revealed himself as the deliverer, 
uh, whined and complained in the wilderness. They disbelieved God. They were rebellious. And as a result of that, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years on a trip that should have only taken them two weeks. The same generation that saw the salvation of God died out in the wilderness because of hard hearts. And the author of Hebrews longs for the church of God, the people of God who've come to trust in Jesus to avoid the same fate as the people of Israel in the story of the Exodus. And so admonishes them with this advice. Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, it's a language of potential, of, of what we could be, what we can live into. You, you who share this calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. He echoes that thought again in chapter 12 in a really beautiful passage. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. Similar language that we talked about a few weeks ago, our, our verse for 2020. He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom. Toward what end? So that we can present everyone who belongs to Christ fully mature in Him. The author of Hebrews says, fix your attention on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. Because Jesus is both the source and the heir of all of the promises of God, he should get all of our attention. The language of apostle, which is, is New Testament language, just means sent ones. And when Mary and the women uh, testified about the resurrection of Jesus, they were fulfilling an apostolic ministry. The disciples who were sent into all the world to proclaim the gospel, just like we are, have inherited an apostolic ministry. Jesus is the one who was sent to us. He was our first and our primary apostle. But he's also the high priest. Again, Old Testament language. The high priest is the one who, who labors on our behalf to bring us close to God. The mediator. The one who is taking two parties and bringing them together to the people representing God and to God representing the people. And Jesus is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest. The one who has been sent to us to reconcile us to God, to represent God to us and us to God, to make those of us who were distant parties now drawn close. It says, fix your attention on Jesus the means of our reconciliation and our atonement, the one sent to us to make a way for us uh, to be reconciled with God and to be restored by God. One of the ways that the Bible talks about this a lot is, is chiefly through metaphors because we're describing a mystery. And one of the metaphors that the Bible really likes to use is, is a metaphor of like a heart transplant. Uh, as a way of talking about the gift of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts have been corrupted and polluted by sin. Uh, things have gone really off course. It's, it's both by our willful rejection of God and also by this perversion of our nature. That the first humans rebelled against God, and as a result of this, we have inherited this proclivity toward our own destruction. We're polluting our own species. This is what we call original sin. Jeremiah described it in this way. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Dwight said to Michael, your heart is a beautiful thing, Michael, but it makes some terrible choices. The heart is beyond cure. It needs a transplant. And this is something that God foreshadowed he wanted to do, spoke through Ezekiel. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and, and be careful to carry, uh, to carry out my laws. The proclivity we have inherited towards sin, God says, I want to give you a new heart, put my spirit in you so you have a new proclivity toward the good. Think about the language that we often use in church, especially growing up. I don't hear it quite as much. We use different language. They talk about inviting Jesus into your heart or make Him the Lord of your heart or the Lord of your life. Be born again. These metaphors and this language is an attempt to articulate a transformation or an exchange that has taken place or that needs to take place in each of our hearts. And many are here because that's happened for you that in one way or another, Jesus changed your life. It could have been when you were at vacation Bible school as a second grader, and you'll never forget how you felt when you walked away from the altar. It could have been as a 42-year-old when you, you know, went through a really nasty divorce and you were at your wit's end, and somebody invited you to church and you just happened to go and you met Jesus and it changed your life. Maybe you grew up in a family that, that loved Jesus, and so you can't pinpoint a time when it happened for you, but just gradually over the course of your life, you came to trust in Him and to trust that living in His way is better. Trusting Him is better, and so I'm going to continue in what God started in me through my parents. In one way or another, many of us are here because Jesus has restored your soul. He's filled you with hope. He's changed your life. And it could be for many of us uh, that, that you've never made that decision. It could be that you made the decision long ago and your heart has grown stale or cold or just is now unmoved by the gospel. You pray, you, you try to do your quiet time kind of thing, you come to church and it is just nothing for you. You're like, are you still there? It, it just doesn't work anymore. It turns out that, that once you have a new heart, you actually have to care for it. If you had an, an, a literal heart transplant and then you go to Steak and Shake every day and you're pounding butter burgers and fries and shakes, you're going to get back in the same situation that you were in the very beginning. And this is one of the dangers of limiting our understanding of salvation to the moment when you raised your hand at summer camp, what we call justification. Justification is like maybe when you cross the line of faith when you were made right with God. If we limit our understanding of what salvation is to justification, it leads to some problems. Salvation is more than the moment when you raised your hand or the moment where you went underwater in baptism. Salvation is everything that God was doing before you trusted in Him to lead you to that place. Salvation is that place where through faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, we are made right with God. And salvation is everything that God is currently doing, all the ways the Spirit is at work in you today, inviting you to be transformed into the image of Jesus. So all of us who trusted in Jesus could say, like, I was saved, I am saved, and I am being saved. There's an ongoing nature uh, to salvation. It's learning to live forever in light of our baptism or in light of our justification. And this is what we call sanctification. So if in trusting in Jesus you've received a new heart, you've been born again, you've, been made, him, you've made Him the Lord of your life, you now live in light of that reality. So you care for this new heart. This is what the author said. When do you do that? He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the rebellion. And then the author goes on, what we've already read. 
He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I want you to notice three things about this little section here. It began with, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And we have this, and then they say the same thing again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's a message that the author really wants us to get. He or she has sandwiched it together with this whole passage here. Three things. One, notice the see to it. He's giving an instruction to you because it's your responsibility for yourself. The see to it, brothers and sisters. Uh, Each one of us is ultimately responsible for stewarding our hearts. We're like the bouncer for what we let into our heart. Uh, And we need to be wise about that. This is what the author of Proverbs said. said, above all else, of first importance, guard your heart. Everything that you do flows out of it. The author says, see to it that you guard it, that you're the bouncer for it, because everything you do, all the ways that you you live are going to flow out of this reality. You are responsible for, for seeing that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. You and I are each responsible ourselves. But then we notice the second thing about the text. He says, but encourage one another daily. So you're responsible for seeing that you don't have a sinful and unbelieving heart, but you also have a responsibility to the other people you know who love Jesus, that daily you're you're going to encourage them to do the same. The hardest habit in the world to change is somebody else's. We ultimately can't control other people, but there's an invitation here. See to it that you take responsibility for yourself, and you also encourage the people around you not to develop a sinful and unbelieving heart. The third thing I want you to see here is, is it mentions sin's deceitfulness. And sometimes in reading Scripture, particularly if it's stuff that you've read before, you take for granted the meaning of the text. Sin's deceitfulness. To be deceived is to be led to regard as true something that's not true. To be led to accept as true something that is not true. And, And from this perspective, it's sinister to deceive somebody else. And it's really sad to be deceived, to live a lie, but you think it's true. It's, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes. Isn't that adorable? Looks like King Friday with no clothes on. The, the emperor is walking around town very proud of himself, but he's living a lie. And the people are laughing behind his back. It's really, really sad to be deceived. It's really sinister to deceive other people, to lead other people to regard as true that which is not true. The, the thing about being deceived is you don't know when you're being deceived. In fact, when you're being deceived or you have been deceived, you're living as if you're living in the truth, Uh, but you're actually living a lie. If you've been deceived, you've bought into an untruth, an unreality, but you 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 don't see anything wrong with it. You don't see anything wrong with your life, with your beliefs, with your situation, or you don't see it readily. There may be those moments where there's a little whisper in your mind, might this be actually untrue? Those quiet moments of wondering, like uh, Principal Skinner on The Simpsons, am I so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. I enjoyed that a lot at 5 o'clock this morning. When we're deceived, you guys, the 11 o'clock people are going to love that. You guys are so lame. (laughs) 
When you're deceived, most of the time you don't get it, but sometimes you wonder. Sometimes you think, do I have a blind spot here? Could there be another reality at work here that I just don't see? But you learn to snuff that question out. And we're deceived, the author of Hebrews says, by sin's deceitfulness. We're deceived into having hard hearts, something that no one would set out to develop or to have. Nobody wants a hard heart, but it happens quietly and gradually and over time. Like when you get in the ocean and slowly as time goes by, you drift down the beach and you think, where am I and how did I get here? As I thought about our church, what it's like to live in Tulsa, what it's like to live in Oklahoma, in our country, in the 21st century, what are some of the unique flavors of sin's deceitfulness? And I came up with the ABCs of a hard heart that I want to share with you for just a couple of moments here. The ABCs of a hard heart, this is how I think sin's deceitfulness shows up often in our lives. The first is apathy. Apathy happens when you forget the stuff that God's done. Uh, when you develop a sense of disinterest or disbelief, a lack of zeal or passion. And honestly, apathy is probably more dangerous than outright opposition to God. Because at least if there's like a, like a pushback, you can fight with it. You can go back and forth, but it's like, man, you just want to electrocute the apathetic to get a response out of them. Apathy is more dangerous than outright opposition to God. And the author of Hebrews says, we are responsible for keeping our own inner fire burning, our own zeal, our own passion. Part of that responsibility is to ask the breath of God to, to blow, to fan the flame that's, that's within our hearts. We're all ultimately responsible for keeping that inner fire burning. You know, we do this through daily prayer. I read this book at one time called The Revival in the Hebrides, which is terribly written, but you should all read. And they talked about as, as this spiritual awakening swept through the Scottish community in the 1940s and 50s, the people transitioned from saying their prayers to actually praying. And you know the difference. You know the difference when you're at a meal Honestly, I hate being asked to pray at meals for whatever reason because I know I'm so inclined toward perfunctory prayers, toward like, like crowd management prayers, or this is the official transition into the mealtime. I honestly would just as soon not pray or have a, good, a better prayer than me pray. You know the difference between saying your prayers <coughs> and actually praying. Excuse me. You know the difference. So how do you keep that fire alive? It's by actually praying. It's by like, okay, I'm going to turn off the, like, the formula that I inherited from like listening to other people pray and just say, hey, anybody up there? Just, just sharing. Here's what I'm actually thinking about. Or using the Lord's Prayer, putting it in your own words and saying like, here's how I'm currently making sense of this. I don't really want to, I don't really want to forgive the trespasses of those other people and here are all the reasons and I wish you'd just like beat them to death like actually having a real conversation with our Creator. It turns out that doing that is part of what makes a heart alive. By not just like reading your daily assigned scriptures, but for seeking them, like Proverbs 2 says, like cry out for wisdom. Look for it like silver. When, when, you're, when, you're, tr when you're really reading the scriptures, like I am desperate to be instructed, that makes a heart alive. Come on, God. Come, Holy Spirit. You got to tell me something. Throw me a bone here. That kind of desperation or need when we have those moments of, how, of awareness of how deeply we need God, man, it's such a gift 
cry aloud for that voice, that wisdom, and search for it like silver and gold. We keep the heart alive, keep the fire alive by Scripture reading, by Scripture memory, I think by worship, by just pouring your heart out to God in worship, through being with other people, through serving the poor. And all of this never happens accidentally. God, would you keep my heart aflame for you? Would you break me out of apathy and sameness and mediocrity and birth something fresh in me? But apathy is is part of the recipe for a hard heart. The B just represents busyness. I think this is an acute temptation uh, for probably everyone in our church. Being too overcommitted, watching too many shows, too many movies, too much social media, too much spending, uh, too much browsing, too much of what the band Arcade Fire called everything now. Our life is busy, our life is loud, and there is too muchness everywhere. Uh, John Ortberg was a pastor, a prominent pastor, and he moved at one point to be a preaching pastor at a large church in Chicago, and he went to Dallas Willard, who's this guru, this spiritual director, a really wise man, and he said, what, what advice do you have for me? They're on the phone, and John Ortberg is sitting there with a blank piece of paper ready to just like write down everything Willard says, and Willard says to Ortberg, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How do I not lose my soul through the busyness of megachurch ministry? That's what Ortberg is asking. Willard says, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, what's next? Willard says, that's it. The too muchness, the too much noise, the too much stimulation, the too many competing storylines, the too many commitments on our calendar, uh, the absence of silence, the absence of stillness, the absence of just room to breathe chokes out our ability to hear the voice of God and respond to the gospel. Busyness is not next to godliness, and Americans are addicted to busy. And I would guess for many of you in evaluating your own life, you genuinely know it's a problem. We're addicted to it, so we don't move away from it, but if you really are serious, you know it's a problem. It is for me. I am, I'm the pastor of a much, much smaller church than the one Orberg was going to in Chicago, and yet I fall into the temptation of busyness, and it's crushing to our response to the gospel. How do we combat it? We embrace silence. Get your phone out of the room. If it's just in the room, even if it's not vibrating or ringing or showing you notifications, you're going to be more distracted. Embrace silence. Say no to things that people ask you to do. Clear out your calendar. Go slow. Read books. Sit. Pay attention to your body. Sleep. We are, we are these fragile little creatures, not meant to go at the speed of light, not meant to consume you know, a library's worth of information on a given day. Our busyness is killing our response to the gospel, and over time, it makes us develop a calloused and a hard heart. This is the biggest one of all, I think, for our church, is the temptation of comparison. I've talked about it a handful of times in the last couple of months. It's the temptation of wealth. It's the temptation of measuring up, of trying not to be different, trying not to uh, stand out in the crowd trying to measure up in how you look, how you spend, how you, how you dress, your car. It's whatever the, whatever the things are that you care about that like keep you a little bit insecure. I think this, this trap of comparison chokes out our response to the gospel. 
It's the lure of affluenza, of measuring up, of competing. It's fueled by fear, by covetousness, by insecurity, by a hunger for the approval of others, and a lack of an identity in Christ. Uh, Jesus told the story of the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the, the, he sows generously and the seed lands in all kinds of places. It's, the story is told to demonstrate different responses to the gospel. Some of the seed lands among the thorns, which Jesus said represents the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And the seed wants to grow in response to God planting it in the soil, but the worries and the deceitfulness of wealth, affluenza, the comparison trap, literally chokes out the gospel. This desire for the approval of others rather than the approval of God. This, this absolute fear of disappointing others and not disappointing God chokes out our ability to respond to the gospel. And over the course of time, it makes us have a hard heart. How do you combat it? Through gratitude. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything that you've given me. Through gratitude, through, through generosity through naming your own values and sticking to them, and it's like, forget what everybody else is doing. This is how I behave. It's called differentiation. It's saying, saying, identifying an I when everyone else is saying there's a we. No, here's who I am. Here's what I value. Here's what's most important, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give in to the temptation to try to measure up. I'm not going to be made to feel fearful or insecure about X or about Y or Z. I'm not going to let the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out my response to the gospel. It requires constant vigilance not to buy the lie, not to be deceived, to regard as true or ultimate that which is not true and that which is not ultimate. It requires constant vigilance to reject the deceitfulness of wealth and to keep from giving in to the comparison trap. And then finally, it's just sin. Sin. This is everything that pollutes you from the inside out. And a lot of times it's, it's tied to our senses, our five senses, so the things that you hear, uh, the music that you listen to, the news, the podcasts, and the tone of the music and the news and the podcasts that you listen to. Um, I like to listen to like a pretty broad sampling of music. If you actually pay attention to the lyrics of a lot of songs that are on the radio right now, they're absolutely pollutant. They're toxic to your soul. They dishonor bodies in ways that are truly shameful. Uh, if we followed their advice, it would lead all of us to utter heartbreak. It's, it's, it's cancer for our hearts and our souls. And we should avoid it. Now, I remember being an eighth grader and like being really zealous for God and thinking I needed to throw away all of my non-Christian CDs. I threw away Harry Connick Jr. for crying out loud. <laughs> That's not what I'm calling for. What I am urging us to do is to consider the inputs in our lives. And a lot of those just like make us worse people. A lot of the news that we listen to, the tone of them is just plain mean. It's, it's less than godliness. Avoid it. Or find alternative sources, the podcasts that we listen to, all the things you hear, the things that you see, the images that you consume on a regular basis, the storylines, things that are on Netflix, like there are tons of things that are just plain bad for us. And there was a season in in, in American Christianity where, where like the church was so detached from the world that for a while it felt cool for pastors to like reference Game of Thrones or reference like Lost but we, I think we've gone in the deep end on a lot of that, and we've overlooked the invitation to holiness. Because a lot of the storylines of popular TVs and movies is really, really bad for us. 
It dishonors the way that God created for us to behave as image bearers. It's toxic for us. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, little ears, what you hear. These storylines, these images, pornography, these are not neutral. They're not without effect on each of us. Think about the things that we touch. This, this is much more than the two examples that are named, but I think about physical violence. I think about uh, sexuality outside of God's boundaries. The things that we taste, uh, you know, overeating. Think about alcohol. Think about drugs, any number of substances. All of these things uh, can deaden our response to the gospel. Secrets in general deaden our response to the gospel. The things that we hope that no one else learns about us, the presence of those secrets themselves deaden our response to the gospel. And so what do you, what do, what do you do, what do we do, what ought we do as followers of Jesus? First John says, if we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he'll forgive us. So if you're struggling with sin, confess it, bring it into the light, share it with, with somebody else. Uh, I will hear your confession if you want me to, but go to a brother, go to a sister, uh, share, uh, share what you need to share, bring it into the light. There's no hope without confession. Get help, strive for holiness, and if that's too churchy of a word, strive for wellness. Do you want to be well? All of these things, the apathy, the busyness, the comparison, the secrecy of sin, all of these over the course of time harden us and make us callous and less supple to the invitation of Jesus to shape us more and more into his image by the Spirit. All of these things, the ABCs of a hard heart, are like riptides under the surface that slowly pull us away from the person that we want to become, and we don't even know that it's happening. They pull us toward a hard heart. We live in the light of what God did yesterday uh, and, and, and are deceived into regarding that that which is true is not true. That which is not true is true. You think, I'm a person that loves Jesus. Well, how do you know that? Well, because 10 years ago, I raised my hand. Or five years ago or two years ago, I, I read the Bible really regularly and I was walking in intimacy with him. Well, good Lord, who am I? And take an audit of, of your life. Like, who am I? Like, take evaluation of my heart. My heart doesn't even feel like it beats in response to the gospel anymore. It's, it's unmoved by, by worship. It's, I'm just too busy. I don't even have time to think about God. Or I'm spending all of my time thinking about everyone else and everything else and hoping to God that they think that I'm okay. And in the corners of my life, I have these secrets that in the moment feel so nourishing, but when I walk away, I hate myself and I live in a shadow forever. Over the course of time, our hearts become deceived. Our hearts become hard, but it was not meant to be like this. Which demonstrates the key word of this entire passage. The key word of the entire passage is this. It's today. Today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When do we ensure that we don't have a hard heart? It's only today. When do we encourage each other to be vigilant about guarding our hearts? It is only today. Uh, when do we stay on guard against apathy and busyness in comparison to sin? It is only today because we only have today. There is no yesterday. There is no tomorrow. And when tomorrow comes, it will be today. There is only today to see to it that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. There is only today to encourage each other. There is only today to respond to the gospel. Against apathy, tend the inner fire today. 
against busyness, slow down, say no, go slow today, against comparison, be generous, practice gratitude, tune out social media today, against sin, confess, get help, step into the light today. There is only today. There is only now. And keeping this in mind becomes a great place of conversation between brothers and sisters in Christ because we can ask each other, how is your heart today? How's your inner, how are you tending to your inner fire today? Well, last month, yeah, but what about today? How's your schedule today? Well, honestly, I'm overcommitted. Okay, well, you've got it. What are you going to do with it? How are you doing with comparison today? Well, honestly, like, like all, I've been on social media for an hour and a half, and your phone will tell you if you are, and like it's choking me out. It's making me really anxious or depressed. How are you doing with sin today? This also gives us the grace of only taking it a day at a time because we don't have to deal with a lifetime. How are you doing today? I'm a big fan of holy impulsivity. I'm a pretty like, slow person in a lot of ways. I'm pretty slow to make decisions in some ways. And yet, once I've made up my mind, I'm going for it. And so I have this, I've learned to develop this like quick trigger toward like, well, I'm learning to develop this quick trigger toward the things of God, where like if I have an idea, like a sense of unction of something good or true or beautiful or obedient I should do, like I'm learning to just try to do it immediately. Is that the voice of God? I don't know. I'm giving it a shot. So think about apathy today for your own life. Think about busyness today for your own life. Think about comparison and the temptation of wealth. Think about sin today for your own life. What might God be inviting you to do? What step of holy impulsivity might be God inviting you to take today to guard your heart for it's a wellspring of life, everything that you do comes from it? What step might God be inviting you to take to reconcile with someone that you've wronged? Uh, what, what calendar clearing do you need to do today, immediately before you leave the building? Who do you need to hug and say, I'm sorry to today before you leave the building? What family member do you need to call today, immediately? Because we only have today. There is no yesterday. There is no tomorrow. There's only today. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't allow yourself for one more moment to be apathetic, to be overcommitted, to give into the comparison trap and look for the approval of others and not the approval of your Creator. And bring those sins into the light because if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we can have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus purifies us from sin. So now's the time in the service where we share communion and it's always the best response ever to any sermon because there's an invitation today to come to the feet of Jesus. There's an invitation to come to Jesus who judges all without finding fault. If you need wisdom, if you need courage, if you need forgiveness, he is delighted to welcome you. He's pleased that you've come. And so as we come to the table, you're going to receive the bread and the juice. You're going to take into your body the life, the breath, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I would just challenge you to be impulsive in the holiest of ways. That as you come and as you kneel, if God is like saying something to you, if there's just like, oh, I got to do that thing, just do it today. Act quickly. There's something that happens when we're in a room like this, where if you listen to this sermon on the podcast later, you're going to be annoyed that I gave people the wrong scripture and the sermon is not going to be as good recorded. But when we're in this room together, 
The Spirit of God is present. Our hearts have been tenderized by singing together, by hearing the Scriptures together. There's something happening here and now in the presence of Christ and in the presence of the church that you could push that first domino over today, today, and to make a decision to do something, to make the next right choice. It could be for you that you've never truly trusted Jesus with your life, that you've been kind of on autopilot borrowing on someone else's faith from yesterday, and today you would say, I'm going to trust in Jesus. I would urge you to do that. I would urge you to do that, to say yes to whatever he's doing in your heart because he loves you. He wants you to be made well and because you want to live into every good thing that he has for you. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the time of testing. But today, respond with yes, today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just welcome you by the Holy Spirit. My intention is never to manipulate or to coerce people. And so, Holy Spirit, just in your kind and gentle way, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of the people of our church. I pray that you would put a specific word on people's hearts and they think, did I make that up? I pray that you would put like a picture in their mind of an activity they should adopt or abandon. I pray that you'd bring to mind a name or a face of someone with whom they need to reconcile or reach out to or forgive. I just ask Holy Spirit that you would speak and for those who today are willing to not give in to hardness of heart but want to hear you that you would speak to give them the courage to be impulsive today and following through with what you want. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you remind us of the words of Jesus, that you convict us of sin, that you're at work roaming throughout the earth looking for hearts that need to be strengthened. As we come to the table today, we pray that in, in, in taking in the body and the blood of Jesus, this bread and juice, his presence would be made real in us, would soften and rub down those calluses, would tenderize the soil that has grown hard, that you grab from the roots those thorns of, of the deceptiveness of wealth and the worries of this world, that you'd remove the rocks from our soil, that you'd replant us in good soil, and that you guard us from the enemy who wants to take the seed away. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.